as we come now to the Word of God, if you'd like to read along with me and you have a Bible in your car, either in paper or online, uh, you can turn to the book of Exodus in chapter 5. If you're reading in your bulletin, there's just an excerpt of the final verses of the text. Uh, so if you're confused as I read, that's what's happening there. Uh, but we'll be here in Exodus chapter 5. We'll take this morning this entire chapter and I think you'll see why here in a moment as it's one whole scene. Uh, but before we read, would you please pray with me? Our great God, uh, you tell us in your word that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children so that we may do all the words of your law. Lord, would you help us now to see what is revealed here? Would you open our hearts and minds to see this morning by your Spirit? Help us to see you that we would be encouraged and be humbled before you. And we ask your help in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the book of Exodus in chapter 5. Uh, we'll begin here in verse, reading in verse 1 and read uh, through the end of the chapter. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who's the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens? The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose upon them, and you shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, Let's go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered, scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, 
your daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, and yet they say to us, Make bricks? Behold, your people are beaten, but the faults in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks and your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. This is the word of God. Now, it is an understatement to say that this is not how the people of Israel wanted their deliverance to go. This chapter seems to go backward, to be a regression. The conditions at the end of chapter 5 are more miserable than at the beginning of this chapter. It's especially difficult to read this whole series of unfortunate events because verse 1 of this chapter begins with the word afterward. Afterward. And when we read that in verse 1, we should ask, after what? When we look at the verses right before, which we briefly touched on last week, we see that Moses here in this context has just returned uh, back to Egypt. He has been sent here by God. And when Moses first comes into town, the first thing that he does now that he's back is not to march right into the courtroom of Pharaoh and say, let my people go. The first thing he does, because the Lord has told him to do this, is to meet with the elders of Israel first. He meets with his own people first to tell them what the Lord has said to him. 
and then to do all the signs that the Lord has given him as a sort of proof that the Lord has sent him. So, so he turns the staff into the snake and, and turns his hand leprous and then back again and perhaps even turned a small part of the Nile into blood. And the people's response as they see these things from Moses, we're told at the very last verse of chapter 4, their response is to believe God to bow and worship before God. This response makes sense. The people of Israel are told, finally, that the Lord is going to deliver them from slavery. So this is a day, then, of hope. You can imagine how this might have looked then as word began to spread across the Hebrew people about this, uh, that some of them might just have felt relief, that they would have felt their shoulders relax, to almost physically feel the weight being lifted from them. Others might have felt a sort of, you know, celebration. You know, let's, let's fire up the grill and, and crank up the music. This is a celebration day. Um, the Lord has heard our cries. The Lord has seen our affliction. The Lord has now sent a deliverer. This is a sort of independence day for them. If they had fireworks, it would have been fitting to shoot those off. It's a day of hope, but not for long. The book of Proverbs says in its wisdom that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And the people of Israel here are about to feel the heavy heart of sickness. Because afterward, their hope is deferred. Because afterward, Moses now goes into Pharaoh. And even though Moses has been told that this will happen beforehand, even though he's been told that the Lord will harden Pharaoh's heart, that the Lord uh, will bring plagues upon them, that Pharaoh will not let the people go, at least not at first, they've been told that still, I don't think Moses or Aaron or any of the people expected what was going to happen next. Not only was the burden of slavery not removed, the burden of slavery was made heavier. Not only did things not get better, they got worse. We could see in the first interaction here that Pharaoh before Moses doubles down. Moses... You're a liar, he says to the people. This is not really about any God. It's not about worship. It's about you being lazy. You lazy bones, you're idle. So no, no, I'm not letting the people go. In fact, instead, let's just keep the same daily quota of bricks, but now the people have to get their own straw to make them. This is the equivalent of saying, you still need to harvest the same, same amount of wheat, but I'm going to take away your combine. I'm going to take away your trucks. But I still need you to bring in the same amount. The Egyptian taskmasters then beat the Israelite foreman. 
to get them to do this. And in return, then, the Israelite foremen begin to push all the people of Israel to work harder, to work longer, to work faster, but they just can't keep up. And so after some period of time, we're not told how long here, but enough to make clear the impact of all of this, the foremen of Israel can't take it anymore, and they decide they have to go before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh tells these foremen of Israel the same thing he told Moses. He said, this is not about any God. You are lazy bones. Idle. You're idle. Get out and get back to work. So as these Israelite foremen are now walking out of the throne room of Pharaoh, they pass there Moses and Aaron, who seem to be waiting to hear the response that Pharaoh gives them. And we can imagine that the look on their faces show that the response was not positive. But we hear what they say then to Moses as they turn on him. They say, may the Lord judge you. It's because of you that we're now a stench in the eyes of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is now going to work us all into our graves. Some savior you are. Hope is gone. Hope is gone by the end of this chapter. So now, what are we to make of this? This deliverer from God, Moses, in a sense, has just made things worse. What are we to do with that? In the rest of our time, I want to unpack here three observations that we can make here about these heavier burdens. Uh, Three observations about these burdens that I hope, I think, will benefit us here. The first observation is this. Heavier burdens can come out of obedience. Heavier burdens can come out of obedience. We recognize that heavier burdens can come out of disobedience too, of course that sometimes heavier burdens are a result of our own sin. Sometimes even societally or even straight from the Lord, there is punishment or discipline that can be either short-term or long-term. Sometimes heavier burdens can come from another person's sin, that we now experience the burdens because of what they have done. We see that here, that Pharaoh's stubbornness is partly responsible for what Israel experiences. But we should also notice here that Moses does what the Lord has asked him to do. Moses has obeyed God here. Moses tells people, let my people go. But the immediate response to Moses' obedience is the opposite of being let go. It's a greater burden for the people. We see this sort of thing happen 
a number of times in Scripture. So we saw it even just a few months ago, earlier on in Exodus, that when the midwives of Egypt were told to kill the Hebrew baby boys, they obeyed God rather than Pharaoh. They obeyed God to protect the children, and as a result, they put their own safety at risk. We see Daniel obeys God to pray, and as a result, he gets thrown in the lion's den. We see Jeremiah obeys God to prophesy, and as a result, he gets dumped down an empty well. Stephen obeys God to preach, and as a result, he gets stoned to death. And Jesus even obeys the Father to fulfill his purpose, and as a result, is crucified. If we are to be followers of God, to be disciples of Jesus, we're told from the scripture that to follow the Lord is the way of life abundant. It is a way of life that is everlasting. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. So to follow him is worth every step. But we're also told that we need to take up our cross to follow Jesus, that if we're to obey him, it will sometimes hurt, even as a direct result of that obedience. That when we obey God, still sometimes we may be lied about or slandered. When we obey God, sometimes as a direct result, we may be turned on or abandoned or sometimes as a result of our obedience, obedience, there may even be some physical burdens put upon us, even bricks without straw. So listen, when burdens come to you, do not be too quick to assume that something has gone wrong. When burdens come to you as a Christian, do not be too quick to assume that you must have done something wrong to make God mad at you. Heavier burdens can and often do come from our obedience. I hope that's an encouragement to you. This second one is now more of a caution to you. The second observation we can make here, the first is that heavier burdens can result from obedience. The second is now this, heavier burdens can sink into blame. Heavier burdens can sink into blame. When we are faced with struggle, especially when the reality does not match our own expectations of how things ought to have gone, we tend to want to pinpoint the reason for our pain. And there can be some good in that, but there can also be a temptation to find a scapegoat of whose fault it all is to start a bunch of accusations and finger-pointing. 
We need to be aware then, beware of the sinkhole of blame. We see here that in the presence of Pharaoh, the foremen begin to blame. They say, no, the fault really is your own people. It's their fault. They are the ones that haven't given us straw. Pharaoh then says, my people? No, no, no. It's your fault. You're lazy, lazy. It's your fault. So then the foremen shift their blame to Moses. Moses, it's your fault. You're the one that put the sword in their hand. May God judge you for all of this. And then Moses, who is now left here at the end with nowhere to point the finger but upward, then accuses God. God, this is your fault. God, you have done evil here. Why did you even bring me here? You have not delivered your people at all. This is your fault. Have you been there? Have you been here before? That perhaps in a place where you might be hurting or frustrated or just burdened, that you end up jabbing the finger of blame at someone, anyone, even at God. We know that the Lord is strong, and the Lord can handle our anger, our fear, and even our blame. But to try to pinpoint fault, while it might make us feel better in the moment, we can see from Exodus here that this approach is not getting them anywhere good. To try to find the source of blame might even be a serious entry into sin that will end up hurting us in the end. Blame does not actually relieve our burdens, even one brick. In fact, blame is likely just sinking us lower and lower under our burdens because now these burdens are not only on our backs and upon our bodies, they're upon our minds and our hearts. If you try to take the burden off your shoulders, but instead end up putting that burden upon your spirit, you are not better off. So beware of the temptation that we see here. Heavier burdens can lead to blame. That's the second. This final observation, I hope, will help us the most. And it's this. Heavier burdens can be a means to greater good. Heavier burdens can actually be a means to greater good. 
if we look at the Lord's response to all that happens in chapter 5, we see him then begin to speak in chapter 6. We'll, be, we'll pick up the bulk of this next week, but we read just the first verse of the next chapter, and you see at the beginning of his response, his actual very first word of response is this. The Lord says, Now, now, now you're ready for what's to come. And some people might look at this and say, well, we were ready before. <laughs> we, were, we were ready for you to save us before. What, you know, why did we have to go through all of this added burden? Why would you put us through all of this? And the Lord does not tell them, he does not tell Moses all of his motives and purpose here. But it does help us to notice that the Lord says, now, and then he doesn't say, now I'll save you, even though he will save them soon. He says, now you shall see me. Now you'll see what I do. More than your need to be rescued, you need to see me. You need to see your God. These heavier burdens, then, are a means to that end. There is a greater good to be had here that is worth the pain of it. We see Paul talk about a very similar thing in 2 Corinthians as he shares his own experience. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Paul writes this, We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. In other words, he says, not only have we experienced this, I want you to know that we've experienced this pain. Now, why? He goes on, but, this is the middle of verse 9, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. The Lord here in Paul is creating a new kind of hope. Not a hope that is just in the hope of being delivered, but a hope that is set on him, a hope that is set on the one who delivers. He's creating a new kind of trust in, him, in, in us that we would not rely on ourselves, but rely on God who raises the dead. And to do that, he might even bring us to the point of death, but he will raise us up with a new trust in him.
We can see that happen real time in the account of Lazarus. Many of us know this, this story. You know how it goes. I won't read it. It's found in, in John chapter 11 if you're interested in reading it. Uh, but you know that uh, the, the story of Lazarus is most famous for Lazarus having died and then being raised back from the dead. It's a very moving, passionate account. And it's most moving, especially because before Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, Jesus weeps, sobs with the sisters of Lazarus at the loss of their brother and the loss of his friend. The deep love that they have for one another is evident there. And the fact that Jesus loves Lazarus so much makes the beginning of the Lazarus account so unexpected. Because we see in just the first verses of John chapter 11 that people have actually sent a message to Jesus. Lord, Lazarus, the one you love, is sick. At the beginning of that chapter, Lazarus has not yet died, but he is sick. And the disciples are confused that Jesus would not pick up and go right away. In fact, Jesus stays where he is two extra days on purpose. And this is not just because he's busy. It's not because he's distracted or doesn't care. It is because he is willing, even waiting, to let Lazarus, the one he loves, die. And Jesus gives his disciples two reasons why he does this. Why he willingly submits himself and others to these burdens. He says, this is for the glory of God, that the Son of Man will be glorified. So it's for the glory of God, but then he also says later, this is so that you will believe. Did you get those two? The reason why he does it is for the glory of God and for the belief in Jesus. These are greater goods worth even the price of death. They are worth all the ache, all the sorrow, all the heavier burdens so that you will believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And it might take bricks without straw or the very tomb itself to see it, but he will bring us to see it. In just a few minutes, we'll close our time of worship here together uh, with one of my personal favorite hymns. It was written 250 years ago or so across the pond in England. And this particular hymn has lasted for so long because it contains some really profound truth and it contains some deep hope in the midst of really heavy burdens. And before we look at this hymn together, 
It will help us to understand what's underneath it when we meet the man behind the hymn. God Moves in a Mysterious Way is the name of the hymn. It was written by a man named William Cooper. William Cooper died of dropsy, which I had to look up what that was. It's an older form of what's now called edema which I also had to look up what that was, but it doesn't matter. He died at almost age 70. But the point is that William Cooper wanted to die much earlier than that. On the outside, William Cooper looked like a typical English gentleman. You know, he wore the buttoned overcoats and, and the fluffy collared shirts of the time. He wore the powdered wigs even. But on the inside, William Cooper struggled with severe depressions. He battled some really intense mental health issues. And in his earlier years, in his early 30s, as a young adult, he tried to take his own life. He tried multiple times, and he tried using multiple means, but he was unsuccessful in it, and still plagued. Until eventually, he was soon checked in as a patient in St. Albans Insane Asylum. And it was there in the insane asylum that William Cooper met God. It might be more fitting to say that God met William Cooper there. Uh, he writes about this experience in a section of his memoir. He writes these words. He says, having found a Bible on the bench in the garden, I opened upon the 11th of St. John, where Lazarus is raised from the dead. And I saw there so much benevolence, mercy, goodness and sympathy with miserable men in our Savior's conduct that I almost shed tears upon the relation, little realizing that it was an exact type of the mercy which Jesus was on the point of extending toward myself. But I sighed and said, Oh, that I had not rejected so good a Redeemer, that I had not forfeited all his favors. But thus was my heart softened, even though not yet enlightened. In other words, William Cooper's chance, we could say, encounter with the Bible at this insane asylum was the softening of himself, the beginning of his new heart. This is the seeds which would grow into true and flowering Christian faith in which he would surrender himself to Jesus. William Cooper stayed in St. Album, Albans Asylum for another year, and after he returned home, it would be nice to say that all his burdens were over. But even Christians still may wrestle with depression even Christians may still experience intense, dark nights of the soul. 
may experience despair and even thought and even action toward taking one's own life. We trust that God's grace is sufficient for these things. And if you are in that position, I hope that you will talk to someone. Please let me know. But it's helpful for us to see that for William Cooper, he continued to struggle even as a believer. That he had seasons of good mental health, but they were also followed by seasons of darkness. He would attempt to take his life again in later years, even though he wouldn't succeed. William Cooper's life was a life of pain. But it was not a life without hope. That in the midst of his most burdened and heaviest days, he was brought to see God. That just as the Lord said to Moses in response here, now you will see what I will do. Now you will see me. Through the work of God, Cooper gained a heart of humbleness, of wisdom, that grew to love and appreciate God for who he is. It was out of this experience that he came to write this hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. The Lord would use this hymn to encourage hurting souls for generations. Let me read now before we end just a few of the final verses of it. He writes this. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord. Would you produce in our hearts a greater glory for you and a greater belief in Jesus? Lord, whatever we face, even in the midst of heavy burdens or heavier burdens, Lord, would you help us to trust you? Bring us to obey you and not to blame, but to see the wisdom of your goodness toward us. We know that you are a good and wise God. Thank you for being our God. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.